The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. From director Laura McGann, The Deepest Breath captures the gripping mix of destiny and danger at the heart of two athletes' undeniable bond. It offers a never-before-seen glimpse into one of the most dangerous sports on the planet. The Daily Beast calls the documentary heart-stopping, expansive, and intimate. Watch The Deepest Breath, now on Netflix. Hey everyone, welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. You're about to hear my conversation with Amanda Spain and Alex Waterfield, which we held live at the 32nd Annual Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival this November. Amanda and Alex are executive producers of the documentary Between Life and Death, Terry Schiavo's Story. You'll hear us mention Nick, that's the director, Nick Capote. The film premieres on MSNBC Sunday, December 3rd at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, and thereafter can be streamed on Peacock. If you enjoy our conversation, please do follow us on X or Instagram at Top Docs Pod. Now here's my conversation with Amanda and Alex about Between Life and Death. Amanda Spain and Alex Waterfield, welcome to Top Docs. Hi. Thanks for having us. We are here at the 32nd Annual Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival, where you are showing your new documentary, Between Life and Death, Terry Schiavo's story. And this tells, as it suggested, the story of Terry Schiavo, who at the age of 26 fell into a persistent vegetative state, more on that in a second, and for the remainder of her life, about 15 years, her family and their surrogates battled over her fate. This film opens up an incredible number of important questions, philosophical questions, moral questions, spiritual questions, legal questions, and ultimately political questions. But can you talk a bit about how you came to the story? As we said, Terry first entered this PVS state in 1990. She died in 2005 after a court ordered her feeding tube removed. What drew you to the story at this time? I think we were all drawn to the fact that this was, on first glance, a deeply personal story. It's the story of uh, a family grieving and dealing with a tragic, really tragic situation, but how that intimate family drama became national news and how it got co-opted by these huge forces like you were just talking about. It's about politics, religion, the law, all these things swept up this personal story into the national spotlight. And we thought understanding how that process happened was really interesting. Yeah, and I think for MSNBC Films, I think what drew us to making the film with them and being the distributor on the film was that our audience cares deeply about these stories, about how these personal stories become political, and in that, the humanity of them is lost. And I think what Latchkey and NBC News Studios did a really good job, and Nick, the director, is bringing the humanity back to the story and really showing all sides. I think it's really important to have these sort of nuanced conversations. What I love about this film is that it's not just one side or the other side. It's more nuanced than that. It's not black and white. And they did a really beautiful job of making sure that we can have a deeper conversation beyond just partisan politics. Nick is a director, director of the film. Yes. He's my partner at Latchkey Films. This was a labor of love for both of us, but him most of all. And it's, it's a shame he couldn't be here with us today. I know he would have loved to have been a part of it, but this is really his movie. I mean, he did an amazing job. I mean, I, the great thing during this whole process of the production and everything is that Nick would give us reports. 
And the passion of which he would speak about the subjects and the interviews he was having, and it shows up in the film, he was so detailed and meticulous about how he talked to each person. And he was really open to each person. There was, again, they were really balanced. And I think that doesn't always happen. And sometimes it shouldn't always happen. But Nick did a really good job of being open to all sides of the story and really just letting people be themselves around him. And you can tell from the interviews that they were vulnerable enough. They felt safe with him. Before we go on, I think it might be helpful to draw a distinction. And one that I don't think was made clearly at the time, I know, was someone who was hearing the story at a distance between a coma and a persistent vegetative state. I mean, I, look, the, from watching the film, I learned this is one of the things you learn when you watch the film is a coma, someone still has a conscious brain. It's still alive, basically. And a persistent vegetative state is one where there's no brain activity. The person is essentially gone. The brain is no longer working. The body's still here, but the brain's not here. What's confounding about this particular situation, and apparently quite often with people have PBS is that they exhibit things that look like responses. They may roll their eyes, they may make sounds. And in this case, that's exactly what Tara's family experienced with her. There's like two images that I think, it's a lot of great images in this film, but there's two that really, I think are interesting to compare. So one is when you watch the video of Terry Schiavo that was taken surreptitiously by her family in the hospital, it's hard not to turn into an amateur neurologist, right? It's hard not to watch her parents, her mother interact. Mother tried to interact with Terry and as Terry makes some noises, her eyes move to her mother's face. It's hard not to ascribe something there. This is her responding. It's a very human thing to do. I think one of the things that's revealed about the short clips we see early on is that they may well have been, well, they certainly were at, these were longer shots that were then pieces were picked up. And as filmmakers, you know the power of film, the visual power of editing. You must have sensed this was a potential danger in people watching the film. How did you handle that? How did you think about that issue and how did you handle it? We were really interested in showing the raw video that actually a lot of that had never been seen before. Everybody was so used to the edited clips. And I think one of the things we wanted to explore in this is what was it about Terry's case that kind of caught like wildfire. There had been PVS cases before, PVS cases after, but there was something about Terry's case. And we think it was that video. It was the first time people got to see something and sort of, as you say, become amateur neurologists and make decisions about what they think Terry's condition is just based on those clips. So we thought it was really important to both show those clips again, because that's what everybody in America saw, but then actually show a longer sequence where you see it completely differently when you know that she actually only responded to one or two out of 50 commands, as opposed to here, look at her responding to all these commands. Hopefully we showed those clips in these two different contexts that will make you think about it differently. I think the power of editing is something that's on display all the time. It's like there's some well-known images of when someone did cutting a horror film into a comedy or a romantic comedy reel, like the editing and the music can change your viewpoint. And I think what this film does is look at how media is used. The family, look, the family loved her and they were doing what they thought they needed to do, but they manipulate the media. They worked together to create a narrative. And in the media, as I am, it's our responsibility to try to give a longer version of stories. It's why documentaries are so important. 
because you get to see the deeper part of it, the longer version of a story that can sometimes get reduced to sound bites and moments. The other image that I found just incredibly visually compelling and really at, at odds with what we saw in the edited versions of the hospital encounters between mother and daughter uh, is shown by Jay Wilson, who's a professor at University of Southern Florida. It was brought in to help the court decide what's actually going on here. He's showing his, I think, medical students some images. Shows them normal 26-year-old brain, and then a scan, an MRI image looked like to me of Terry Schiavo's. And basically, as he says, there's whole center part of the brain appears to be liquefied. Cerebral cortex, cerebellum, key things that make us us seem to be liquefied, is what he said. When you see that, and you think that. The family must have seen that pretty early on. A lot of the struggle in the film is between Michael, who after a few years of really trying to help Terry get better, feels it's impossible. And her family continues to believe that she should be offered life support. It's hard for me to imagine Michael or the family looking at that image and continuing to have hope that Terry would one day be better. Like it's so powerful visually compelling evidence. I can almost not imagine what they were thinking beyond just pure hope. Hope for a Yeah, it's really hard to look at those scans and still believe that there's any chance that she was ever going to get better. But it's the power of love and grief. Yeah. And when you, it's a loved one, I think you're able to convince yourself of a lot of things. And the other thing that the Schindlers would say and did say is even if she never gets any better, we still want her with us, even if there is no hope. This is still Terry, and we still want to take care of her, and I don't think anybody can take that away from them. For me, I think one of the more powerful things about the film is really the examination of our relationship with death. And I think that this mm -hmm. piece also did a really good job of, and, and Nick and Alex and the whole team, they did a really good job of setting that up. Like, we're afraid to die. And because we're afraid to die, most people are afraid to die, maybe not all people. We hold on to things in different ways, and it makes total sense that someone, like, would fight for their loved one to stay. And it also makes sense why someone would want them to, like, you can see both sides. And that's what's so great about this film is that, I mean, I still walked away believing what I believe back when I heard this story when I was younger, but I understand the other side more now. And like, I hope whoever watches this film can walk away with a little bit more understanding of what people are going through and some of the darker moments. It doesn't get worse than losing someone you love, right? Yes, and the Schindlers really do hope, have hope for their daughter. They also are Catholic. As listeners to Pod I was raised very Catholic, and there is this really belief that never give up on life, right? That's really crucial. John Paul, too, eventually weighs in here. says the feeding tube is the equivalent of euthanasia, which he just believes in. So there is that also. It begins to reach into the religious aspects. Well, let's get that in a second. Let me ask you one other question about this, which is, as somebody who has had MRIs, it is really interesting to look at someone else's MRI because it's sent typically, it's sent to you over the internet. You're like, whoa, someone's looking inside my brain. It's, it's a real sense of vulnerability that comes with it. I was wondering, when we're seeing some of this intimate film, Terry or family, medical records, being displayed by a doctor in front of students and by extension in front of the nation. How do we think about medical privacy? It's hard, right? Terry wasn't around to, to consent. I think we did a, a couple of things. One, all the documentation was part of the public record. This was a legal dispute that went on over a decade. A lot of stuff was submitted to the courts. Legally, there was nothing 
untoward about using it. I think we tried really hard and did have a lot of conversations about what is the appropriate amount of footage of Terry to use. Yeah. And yeah, that was a, an ongoing sort of challenge. And I think we landed at a place where we showed only what we needed to in order for people to sort of understand her situation. We hopefully didn't come across as exploitative at any moment. We consulted with disability rights folks about what they felt is the best way to use it appropriately. And yeah, hopefully it was all in service of letting people understand what exactly was going on with Terry as they think about their own lives in that, what they would, they would want in that situation. I think the other interesting thing about the film, like there's so many layers to it, right? But body autonomy is one of them that I think about a lot. Yeah. And I think about this film, especially in a post row world, watching this film with that in mind brings it a new perspective on it. But I, I think also it's here's a woman who can't advocate for herself at the center of this story who has no body autonomy, right? Like someone else is having to make it, gets to make a decision over her body. And then in essence, that leads to more people making decisions over women's bodies. It made me really realize, make sure that you're very clear with those you love what you want to happen to your body. We all are going to die. And so we need to figure out so that we don't put our families through what this tragic situation was. I was actually going to ask you if working on this documentary made you think about the wisdom of having a DNR, a yeah. DNR state. I've been thinking about it a lot and, the, and I've been thinking about it a lot because I haven't landed on how I feel. And it's funny because I have two kids, right? And I like, I, they're younger kids. And I thought, well, what if I can totally go down the rabbit hole of, well, what if science advances all the time? Like right. you can start to think like, what is, right? But I also have to remember the what if of God forbid, my family's in this situation where they're fighting over my body. So it's, it's complicated. Yeah. I do have my advanced directives in writing now with my wife and I did not for this. There was actually um, a big spike in people doing their living wills after this case, but I think it's the stats which are hard to come by, but it seems like it's gone back to a much lower level than it should be. I just want to touch one point you said, which is that Bobby Schindler, I think, yeah, uh, Terry's brother, I think actually invests this the most clearly in the film, which is like, call it PVS, what you want. E even I understand that maybe she has suffered massive rape damage. I still want her to live. She still deserves to live. And this is a theme that's picked up by disability rights groups, which in general tend to be much more socially left than most people who are in the right to life. I would point out there are a lot of middle-of-the-road Catholics in the United States who are very life-driven. But so that's very interesting, isn't it? That this is way is a spot in it's the far left actually who also would support Terry's continued living. Look, I mean, I think there are people to your point that would fight to have someone be alive, regardless. And again, that goes back to body autonomy. Who gets to decide? what she said in the court, like if she really said, I wouldn't want someone to, I wouldn't want people I love to deal with that, then it's her right, it's her body. And I think that's really at the core of this discussion is who gets to decide mm -hmm. who has power over other people's bodies. It's really complex, right? Because questions are who decides her immediate family or her husband, Michael, or is it her own preceding wishes? Or does that state have a stake in all this? And courts are gonna decide who decides in some ways. It's incredibly complex. 
And it varies state by state as well. Different states have different laws. Yeah, people should look into that wherever they, wherever they live. It might make a difference. Yeah, I mean, someone told me last night in Arkansas, it's a really complicated law here. Like the DNR laws like are very, you know, that you have to be very, very specific on your living wills because if you're not and you don't want to be resuscitated, they might end up doing it anyway. Yeah, you better know where you live. About halfway through the film, after Michael, Terry's husband, and the Schindler's, her immediate family, have been battling in the courts for a while. In fact, judge has decided that Michael's representation is that Terry expressed a desire not to be put through this, a desire to die in situation. In steps a big character, Randall Terry, who is the head of a major anti-abortion group. And in many ways, it seems as though Terry is promoting his own agenda. The Schindlers are very willing to accept this help, but mainly it seems because they will accept any help at this point. Can you talk about Randall Terry, who actually interviewed the film? Yeah, he's a very controversial figure. The group that you're referring to, Operation Rescue, depending on who you ask, some people say that's a terrorist organization. You, of course, we can characterize it that way. But yeah, he played a big role in making the story blow up in the media. I'm not sure it would have reached the level of chaos that it did without him. Yeah, Randall, he is a complicated figure. If you ever want to go down a rabbit hole and you want to know about one of the leaders in the right to life movement, he is complicated. He's unique. And I think that his story doesn't match his actions a lot of the time. But especially in that time, Randall Terry was a huge figure in the pro-life movement. I think it's dissipated since then. He got yeah. kicked out. Got yeah, I think he out. got kicked out. Like, yeah. But he like played the piano yes. for the filmmaker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just to, to add to that, I think his arrival sort of marked the moment that this became a runaway train that right. was no longer, and the Schindlers were being co-opted by these larger forces. It was no longer about them. They were being used sort of as a device for them to push forward with. And then Bobby goes into that world. Yeah. Pretty yeah. deeply. That's what's interesting is though the Schindlers repeatedly say, look, we weren't necessarily aligned with the, the agendas the folks came to help us. In fact, Bobby becomes a speaker of the pro-life movement, mm-hmm. anti-abortion movement, is that right? Yeah. Randall Terry is really kind of this persario in some ways. The person comes in and blows it up. He's the person who can get them in front of Jeb Bush, the then governor of Florida. You guys open up on him being applauded. I thought maybe a little reference. <laughs> please, please applaud, please clap. And the brother of George W. Bush, he's the president. What's interesting also is in come other people like David Gibbs. David Gibbs is a whole other animal, right? He's not the person that's going to bring a lot of publicity. He's just a litigator. He's somebody who represents a group who really, I think you make the case, not only would like Christian religion to play a bigger role in our laws and our governance, but in fact, he's part of a network of groups who are really trying to turn the U.S. into a Christian nation. Yeah, I don't think he would disagree with anything you just said. I, th- I think when the Schindlers had started to become aligned with the pro-life movement, that suddenly became a big opportunity to sort of align all these different kind of groups, mostly evangelical groups, and align them all to become this sort of power block within our politics. That's right. They did align, and that's the point of the film, is that there were lots of different groups at that time, and they sort of started to coalesce around this one issue and really realize the power of the moment, right? 
Now, of course, we can have a reflection now of history. They caught the car, they overturned Roe, and now they're watching the, the powerful block now is understanding what happened. Like, it was great to drive out their base, and they're like, it was, it was a great thing. And now that they've done the thing, they're watching the reversal happen, right? But yeah, it was definitely a time when they learned that it's true. Gathering groups of like-minded people is powerful. I mean, that's why voting matters. And just to add to that, I think it was the first time once everybody had gotten aligned, they realized that they could affect change legislatively and with the executive branch as well. George W. Bush signed the bill, but it was actually the courts that stopped them. And that's the other really important thing about the film is the emphasis that they, like she just said, that they really realize the courts matter. And the courts have held us up for even this last few years, right? And the courts are really important. You have to have people in there that are balanced and thoughtful. Since Terry Schiavo first entered this persistent vegetative state in 1990, our understanding of coma, of PVS, and minimally conscious state has expanded. And using various improved technologies, you know, MRIs and scans that are smaller and quicker and more accurate, we're seeing some studies that suggest some people can hear us and even respond in some ways. And, and using that insight, some treatments are actually beginning to take hold where they'll tell somebody, pretend you're playing tennis. They chart that and say, try to open your hand. And just try and open your hand. They can say, oh, the person's responding. And then after many weeks of that, this person starts just trying to open their hand a little bit. I wonder, this is obviously not in all what this is about. This is about, as you said, life, death, who controls us, our bodily autonomy and religion and all sorts of things in American culture. But I do wonder at all if you folks thought about any of this and how that might change the story today. As technology improves, it's going to be a lot easier to find proof of life within the brain. But I still wonder, even if that's true, even if there are electrical synapses firing as a response, if you're still stuck in a hospital bed, does it make a difference? I don't know. And that's just me speaking personally. I think that goes to the heart of the personal question. And that's why when you watch the film, you have like, that's why I have had so many thoughts about like my own mortality and things like that is because you do say, even if, what would I do? But I want to be like, it's, it leaves you with a lot of questions. And I think that's, what's great about, you can watch a film and walk away having big existential thoughts. <laughs> I think you've made a good film. And I think that this film does that really, I felt when I watched it, like I started to really examine life and what it all means. What is life? So I think these are important questions that a film that's grounded in a political moment actually makes you have a spiritual discussion, which I think is really cool. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and people are asking exactly the same questions, the locked-in state you yeah. talked about. In some ways, it seems to maybe the family is like, oh, over time, maybe there's a way out. Maybe we can find a way out for this person. Yeah. For the person who's locked in, they may prefer not to live through decades of this. Again, that goes back to that person's decision. Terry was in the unfortunate situation of, she was, I mean, no one has their life will done at 26. If they do, they're like the most type A human ever. It really is important that we really understand what we want. I think as women in particular, we have to be very clear what we want. I don't want other people making the decision for my body. And so I think I, now at this point, if you're 22, you should have like, you know, there should be like a movement around that so that no one else gets control it. And just talk about that more, I yeah. think, you know, we just, for obvious reasons, I think avoid 
talking about it. And that's how you can end up in a situation where nobody knows what you would have wanted because you never we talked don't, about we, it. We never talk about it. And that was one aspect of the film that I, I like that we got to include a little bit of is like the idea of the hospice, which is let's get more comfortable talking about this. It happens to everybody. We all die. We should be better about how we think about it, yeah. how we need to be close to it. To and how we it. can do it with dignity. That was the other yeah. really important thing about, I think everybody felt in this, like both sides of the story wanted her to have dignity. And I think the hospice movement the, and the two women who walked her through that journey, really special. They went through hell. They were like threatened. These women who just all they wanted to do was like help a woman transition in a way. And they are, they're together so, now, those two women. Oh, yeah, they're together. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah they is. fell in love during that, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they've been together ever since. Yeah. That's pretty cool. What's funny, my mom is almost 90. She's 89. Good for her. I don't know what her request is. Say nothing with my 20-year-old son. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so you're after this talk, you're going to go call them both and be like, what do you want? It changes. My dad's 82, and he's getting older. And I remember the types of things he would say when he was like, 60s and 70s, like, I would never want to live in that, you know, if I start declining, like, just, but it cha it's easy to say that until you once, get close. You, <laughs> once you get close and then you start wanting to ha hang on. So it's, it's also an evolving feeling. Do you have any final thoughts or what would you like people to take away? I want our audience to take away the human part of the story. Again, political moments, they're so hot, right? And it's easy for all of us to forget that there are actual people behind these stories that are really feeling pain at all the levels of emotion. And I think for me, this film is important because it reminds people, reminds the audience of that fact, that there are real lives behind these breaking news moments. You can't just go into a corner. When you start to have empathy, you can't just be one-sided. And I think this film does a really good job of creating empathy for all sides. I don't have to agree with you politically to understand that you're in pain. And I think that that's what's so special about this film, is that they created that space. Just to add that a little bit, this story was like a hurricane through these people's lives. These were completely ordinary folks. And this story, once it became a national news story, they were pawns in the bigger debate that was swirling and after Terry passed, everybody moved on. The news cycle moved on to a different story and these folks were left with the devastation of what had just gone through their lives and it was important to us to, I think that was part of it, was like, look at these humans that were at the center of this crazy thing that happened and let's remember that they were people yeah. before and after the headlines. Thank you for being here today and thank you for this story. And it's one that I followed at a distance. I thought I knew, but I, clearly I didn't. There were a lot of revelations here. They really did make me personally think about my situation, the situation of my parents, even the situation of my kids in, in these matters. So thanks again. Thank you for thank having me. Top Docs is a production of Willie Media. This episode was produced by Ken Jacobson and Mike Merrill and edited by Mike. Thank you.